Hey friends, this is Jason and the South Bend City Church Podcast. Hey, this is the audio from our October 26th gathering. And I'm so sorry that we are so late getting this to the podcast, but hopefully better late than never. Uh, We are in a series on the book of Acts, which is helping us to reimagine what church is and what kind of possibilities exist when people gather around Jesus and ask themselves what it means to surrender to his work in the world so it can expand in them and through them. That's uh, the way that we want to begin our conversation about becoming a church. Uh, So that's what we've been up to. We gather most Wednesday nights at The Brick in South Bend, and you are so welcome to join us. Uh, But just make sure that you go to southbendcitychurch.com and check out the What's Happening section of the website. Uh, So you'll be sure that it's a week when we're gathering there. Occasionally this fall, we've got a night where we've got something else going on, or maybe the brick was booked for another rental, and we had to get creative about what we were going to do. So you'll want to check in there. Uh, The best way to stay in the loop on everything we have going on is to sign up for the newsletter, and you can do that at the website. I promise we won't spam you, but we'll send you an email update every week or two, and make sure that you know what's going on. Uh, That being said, we'll take you back to October 26th, and the next episode in our exploration of the Book of Acts. Here we go. Hey guys, I'm Jason, if we haven't met. And I also want to say welcome. Really, really pumped that we get to be together tonight. And uh, it struck me tonight, um, so we've been doing this for a few Wednesdays now, and a whole bunch of people help make that happen. But some of them are the instrumentalist musicians who do that. You guys want to say thanks to these guys for helping us, right? Yeah. For these guys, uh, like others, it means either getting off work early or making their life work to be here on a Wednesday afternoon for a few hours before we all show up. So I'm really grateful for these guys. And, and I'm a bit of a musician myself, and I was just sitting there thinking, we got stinking good music for a church plant. You know what I'm saying? So that's neither here nor there, but I'm grateful. Um, hey, we are, we are doing the book of Acts. We've been exploring the, the birth of the church, the, the very same movement that we want to be a part of, that we want to root our lives in. We've been asking ourselves, like, what is a church? What does it really look like and feel like to be a part of what a church is? Especially if we strip away some of our cultural expectations for that. Let's just see what we find in that story. And it's good that we have something like the book of Acts to carry us through the season that we're in. It's a bit of a plan to kind of carry us through these months together. One of the reasons it's good is because it keeps the preacher from going on tangents. Because like tonight, like I feel this temptation to like take an entire night just to talk about like the moment our country is living in right now. Maybe you've like sensed me like getting close to that when we gather sometimes and then backing away from it a little bit. And like every so often our country finds ourselves in a season where we have what's going on right now with these two sides, you know? And... Often you find preachers who I feel like are way, way out of bounds thinking it's their job to stand up and tell everyone which side they're supposed to be on. Like, I don't think that's really the best way to go at that, right? But sometimes, like, what you see is people in the world who are public in the world who align themselves with Jesus but then also align themselves with the side. And sometimes you need a Christian leader to just stand up and say, you cannot align yourself with Jesus and be an Indians fan in the World Series. I mean, come on, Jesus is 
the friend of the underdog, the lovable loser is like what Jesus' friends should be called. So I just want to go on the record and say, this is a Cubs loyalty church. And I know there are Indians fans. There's at least one Indians hat in the room. So if that heresy is going to walk in, I just feel the need to correct that from the authority of the Lord, from the pastor here, okay? On Angela's here. <laughs> Preach it. Can I get an amen? Yeah, I, this isn't like a big amen church, but I think tonight it's coming. I'm sorry. little preacher's privilege. Uh, no, seriously, we're in the book of Acts, and we're talking about this early church stuff. I want to give you a bit of a refresher of where we've been, and then for a minute, I kind of want to open it up and just hear from you guys about what's been rattling around for those of you who've been a part of this conversation for a few weeks. So let me remind you sort of where we've been. The first week, we looked at Acts chapter 1. And we saw that in, in, in some sort of clever and unexpected ways, the writer is opening us up to the possibility that the church is actually the expansion of Jesus' work in the world. That all the good, all of the loving, all of the healing, all of the powerful work that Jesus began in his physical life on earth, that that continues and expands in the church, that it gets bigger in the church, that the church opens that up for the whole world. And then we looked uh, last week, we, we, we take all this promise, all this potential, all, I mean, that's like a really, really like high aspiration for the church, right? Like, like, I don't know about you, but I know me, and I think for me to be part of that, like, that seems like a stretch, you know, <laughs> like, because I'm selfish, and because I struggle, and because I don't have all the pieces together, and yet the promise of the church is that as we walk together, we are becoming a part of Jesus' work in the world. So there's this big promise and then at the end of chapter 2 in the book of Acts, we see this promise begins to be realized. We see this beautiful thing breaking into the world that they are centered around the story of Jesus. They call that the apostles' teaching. They're centered around the story of Jesus. They're loving one another, including people reaching out to the poor. Nobody has any need. They're gathering in the temple courts in the center of society, and they're gathering in homes and breaking bread and sharing meals. And you just hear this beautiful thing, and we asked, how do they go from all that promise to that promise breaking into the world? And one of the things that we looked at there, Peter has this big speech, and he talks about the fact that Christ came into the world with his goodness and truth and beauty, and what did we do? We, we rejected him. We tried to destroy that, that very thing. And maybe part of us longed for it, and yet every one of us in some way identifies with the ways that we reject and run from and even try to destroy the good things and even the God things that come into the world. And uh, we, we saw there for a moment that it seems like some part of the journey from all this promise to the promise breaking into reality is for us to uh, be confronted, every one of us, just for a moment about the ways that we may run from or reject uh, what is good or what is of God in the world. And this week we're, uh, we're moving into chapter three, but that's where we've been. I wonder, is there anything that's been like rattling around for you, anything that stood out for you, anything that you like find like a, a day later or a week later, it's still with you? Maybe it's something you heard because it was said, or maybe it's just something that you heard internally as you were discerning, or maybe it was a couple days later, or maybe it was, I, I don't know, but I'm just curious. Anybody, like, want to throw anything out? There's no wrong answers here, I promise, unless you said that God told you the Indians are going to win. That's the wrong answer. Anybody want to throw anything out? Don't be shy. I know we have a few brave people in the room. Last week was heavy. Last week was heavy. It was really heavy. heavy. Yeah, we, just so they can all hear, so, and we did confession, and not like confess out loud, but if you weren't here last week, we just took some time for everyone to, for some space to sort of own that, right? Yeah, that carried with me for the week, mm. how, how you come to redemption from that. How you come to redemption from that, yeah, thanks.
Got it, yeah. Like that picture and then our reality. Yeah. And there's like a big gap. Yeah. Yeah. Last week when we were talking about um, looking at the darkness in the world and realizing that we have some of the darkness in us, that helped me not have so much of like this us versus like mm-hmm. me mentality, you know, like to actually realize, oh no, I have some of that darkness in me as well. And like once I face that, then I'm so much able to like empathize and sit with and yeah. care for the way that it's coming from me. Man, I really resonate with that. There's, um, there's this line that a friend of mine shared with me from a thinker named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I don't know if that's how you say it, but I tell you a friend told me because I didn't actually read his book and I don't want to come across like, like I had because it's like that thick. But um, he said, uh, the line between good and evil is never between us and them. The, the line between good and evil is never between us and them. It runs through the center of each one of us. And uh, I don't know, I, I've been marked by a guy named Henry Nowen, a thinker who says that a lot of compassion comes like real compassion comes from becoming the kind of people who are in touch with that inner reality, right? Because once you, once you detect that inner reality, then when you see that darkness in somebody else, you're less judgmental and a bit more in solidarity with, with that, yeah? Wow, thanks. Well, that's some good stuff, guys. Uh, thanks for being willing to share. This week we're in Acts chapter 3. Uh, if you want... You probably uh, got these. Uh, this is our, this is high def. We went high def this week. We upgraded to our high def paper scriptures. And uh, we're just going to jump right into this. There's a whole bunch going on here. And so we're going to sort of just pivot through a couple of angles, a couple of perspectives that we see in the story. And I, I don't know how that'll hit you. Maybe one of them you won't feel very connected to. Maybe another perspective you will. But let's just sort of move through this text together and see what we find. So this is uh, Acts chapter 3. I'll pick up right at the top. Now, Peter and John here, uh, these are two of Jesus' closest friends and followers, right? So they're sort of at the center of some of the action here, and they know the story of Jesus really well. And one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Let's, uh, let's call a time out there and just get to know this character a little bit. So this guy is born crippled. And even in our modern world, we can probably like, assume that that's a difficult life that he's lived, right? But I, I want to just intensify that so we appreciate what's going on for him in this context. Because for this man to be born crippled means that from the day he was born, the words of Leviticus 21 apply to him. Let me, let me read this to you. This is uh, at the bottom there. Leviticus 21, verse, 19, or verse 17. Say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defects may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand. No descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to present the offerings made to the Lord by fire. He has a defect. He must not come near to offer the food of his God. He may eat the most holy food of his God as well as the holy food, yet because of his defect, he must not go near the curtain or approach the altar and so desecrate my sanctuary. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, those words fall kind of hard on my ears. They're kind of uncomfortable even, like that's the way this text would talk about a person with that going on. And that could open up a huge can of worms that we could dig into at another point. But let's just for now, like let that text help us imagine what it's like to be this person. I mean, from the day this guy is born, 
he's, he's not only um, ha- has disability that prevents him from doing some things physically, but he's, he's like in a category of person that in this society at this time is forced to the periphery, forced to the sidelines of, of the holy action that's going on at the temple for the people of God. Remember the temple for them, this isn't just the religious place. It's not just like church on Sunday. The temple is the seven days a week, 365 days a year, constant center of Israel's religious life, theological life, spiritual life, political life, economic life. I mean, everything is centered at the temple. And this guy, because of what he's been born with, he's kept away from, he's on the periphery, on the sidelines, always having to look in. I kind of wonder, like, what did that do to this guy, right? Like, like, was he bitter? Was he angry? Was he frustrated? Was he resigned? Like, did he, had he just kind of like said, you know what, I guess this is just my lot. This is the way things go. I'll always be second class. I wonder, like, what, what did this guy dream about? Did he, did he dream much at all? Like, did he, when he was a teenager, did he have the kind of aspirations that, like, modern teenagers have? Like, I'm going to have this life ahead of me, this hope ahead of me. Did he dream about anything anymore? Like, was there a, a vibrancy inside him? Was there, like, a, a, a dark, frustrated energy inside him? Were things just kind of quiet, dead inside? I, I, we don't really know, but I, it's just curious to think about. And maybe to ask yourself, like, where would you be? Where would your mental state be? Where would your heart be? What would your spirit experience if you'd been born into this world in a way that, like, you're just told you're on the periphery? I wonder how it felt that maybe the world was always against him. I, I wonder if it felt like maybe God was against him. That God wasn't uh, safe for him. That God wasn't good toward him. That God wasn't predisposed and loved toward him. I I don't know, but we should just ask ourselves, I wonder what it was like uh, for this man to be under those words from Leviticus. Let's uh, let's keep reading verse 3 here. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Now, in a sense, it, it adds up, right? Like, especially at this time and place, like, to, to not be able to, to use your body the way everybody else uses their body means that you're probably not going to have income the way other people have income. But I, I don't want to just, like, brush over that. I don't want to just move past that. I want to hold on for a second and ask ourselves, like, when did he stop asking for healing? That's what I wonder. When did he, when did, did he ever ask for healing? I, I wonder, like, were there times in his life where, where he prayed like really intense prayers or reached out to rabbis or like when a prophet came along he seemed to have that kind of gift to reach out and provide that for him were there seasons in his life when he asked for healing and were there moments when he stopped and here he is uh, on the side of the road and he's just asking for alms that kind of old word that we have for giving to the poor I I raise this because um, whenever you see a character in scripture with any kind of desire, any kind of plight, any kind of problem, any kind of situation, I think it's really good for us to ask ourselves, have we been there? Do we know any of that? Have we felt that? Whenever we see a character who um, is asking for something, it's, it's good to ask ourselves, do you ever ask like that? Like, think about all the ways that you and I do our asking, our desiring, our hoping, our looking forward to the world, our reaching out to other people, like, to try to bring them in, like, all the ways that we do our asking. And maybe the the way we actually approach one another, or maybe this is the way that you approach a, a religious leader, or a, a preacher man, a pastor, something like that, and you're hoping, asking, praying for something to change in your life, something to come into your life, something to break open in your life. Sometimes it's, it's, it's in our prayers. Like, like you learn a lot about what's going on in your heart by actually paying attention to what you pray for, what you ask for, right? Sometimes it's in your daydreams, 
the ways that you fantasize about a future that may or may not be available to you, the ways that you reach forward to a reality that's not a part of your life right now, we all do our asking in different ways, don't we? We all do our active desiring in different ways, don't we? Sometimes it's how we do our work. Sometimes it's how we approach our dating life. Sometimes, like we all do our active desiring, our active seeking in all sorts of different ways. And we got a character here right now who every day gets posted at the temple gate so he can do his asking, so he can do his seeking, so he can reach out. And here he is and he asks Peter and John for money. Um, and it just strikes me as a really small ask like a really reductive, like a really reduced, like a really one-dimensional thing that this man is asking for. And we don't know like a lot about him. We get a little snippet, but I don't think that's meant to restrict how we read this text. I think it's meant to open up all the different ways that we could relate to this person. Like, what do you dream for? What do you imagine? Like, what do you think if tomorrow could be everything you hoped it would be? Would it simply be that a few alms land in your hand or that something more transformative would happen? Uh, confession point for me, like a couple of ways I've been really wrestling with this this week. When I started uh, preaching, um, it, was, it was terrible, first of all. <laughs> there was, this is a true story. Uh, early on, there was a girl who came to a service I was leading, uh, and she tallied the number of times I said, um, and it was like 700, and then she wrote a whole blog post about it, which was super helpful, you know what I mean? <laughs> but it was really bad. And, 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 and I'd, so I'd stand up and I'd preach and then I'd have another preaching date on the calendar. And if I'm being really honest with you guys, like I'd be working on the sermon and sometimes like I'd lay at night, awake at night thinking about what the sermon's supposed to be. And, and so often like the early desires I would have, the way I would dream about it, the way I would hope for it, the way I would work on it, the way I would do some of my asking is I'd really hope the sermon's funny. Because like it feels really good that people laugh, right? Or I'd really hope people are impressed. I'd really hope that, like, man, when I drop that, people are just like, boom, no way, dude. You know what I mean? Like, I hope they would think it's, like, the best TED Talk they ever saw. <laughs> and, I, and I caught on to that for a second, and I, and I listened to those prayers, those desires, the way I was doing my asking inside, the way I was approaching my work, and, and it, I just realized, like, that's really, really small. And so here's what I decided I would do. Anytime I caught myself, like, like reaching for that future, like, hoping that would be what happened to me or with my work, every time I caught that, I wouldn't like beat myself up or judge myself for it or hang my head because that doesn't get us anywhere, but I would just redirect my imagining, like redirect my dreaming, my desiring, and so I would catch myself thinking that way, then I would just say, okay, that's fine, but let's like table that for a second. Let's imagine the people who hear this sermon knowing how unbelievably loved by God they are. And I would just kind of like picture different people in the room. Like, let's just imagine, like, what happened? What, 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 would, what would happen if I stood up and talked for a few minutes and like every kind of person in the room walked away thinking, holy cow, God loves me like crazy. Or what would happen if like this text and the way we encountered it, what if it opened up a new possibility for us to press further into what God has made us for, to press further into good work in the world, to press further into wholeness and integration. So I would just sort of like, Try to upgrade my reaching, upgrade my asking, upgrade my desiring, upgrade my way of thinking about what tomorrow I hoped would happen. Uh, I don't know if you can relate to that. It's the same thing with South and City Church. I'll be super honest with you guys. When I'm like, oh, wow, we're going to do a church. Okay. Um, hope the website's good, you know? <laughs> like, uh, hope the logo's cool. I, I mean, like, you have these ways of sort of reducing our dreaming, our asking, our desiring, right? And I catch that, and I think, no, 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 like, like, what if something more holistic and healing and beautiful could happen, right? 
But I just want to call that out because here we have a man whose body is broken and who's on the periphery of what's happening in the world and all he's asking for is alms, a few dollars. And I'm, I'm not blaming him for that at all. I'm not blaming him, but I'm just, I'm just noticing that his ask, his dream, the future he seems to be reaching for is just really, really small. Let's, uh, let's keep going. This is uh, verse 4. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And I just want to observe, the man is asking them for money, but Peter and John have to say, look at us, which makes me picture a person whose head is hanging down. He's not even making eye contact. I don't know if it's shame or fear or if he thinks that's what his donors need to see. I don't know, but I picture his head is down, his hand is up, and Peter and John, they're the ones, and they say, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And this guy finds out he was asking for far too little for these, from these men, right? Finds out he was asking for far too little from the movement of Jesus that was breaking into Jerusalem at that point. And they say, first of all, look at us, because you need to know that we see you. Right? Like, look at us. You need to know that we, we see you, not one-dimensionally, but three-dimensionally. That we, we don't see a, a hand looking for a hand on our way to more important, more spiritual things. Right? I mean, they're on their way to the temple where, where all the action is, where all the God stuff is. And I, I can just imagine that most are tempted to throw a few coins down on their way to where the action is. And they say, no, no, no. We're going to stop. We're going to see you. We're going to look at you. And you need to know that we see you, that we are looking at what's going on here. And then they grab him by the hand. And I, it's like they're saying... We're, we're going to hold hands together. We're going to walk together as you are healed, as you get awakened to a much, much bigger dream of wholeness and integrity in your life, of being healed, of being brought together to what God intended you for, and then brought into the center of the action, brought to where all the God stuff is happening, to where all the good stuff is happening, to the center of that social space. They bring him into that space, a man healed. And I, I, um, when, I, when I think of this, I, I wonder if, I wonder what all had to go on inside him. Like the fact that his, his body was healed, I don't imagine after a lifetime that it was just an easy, simple thing for him to walk into that space that he'd been prohibited from forever. I mean, do you really think that for 10 or 20 or 30 years or however long this man had been sidelined on the periphery, do you think like he just easily walked into that God space? For all the years that he may have plenty of reason to think that God was against him, do you think that it was easy for him to just quickly walk into that space? I think something internally had to happen at the same time that his body got healed. Something more than physical healing had to happen for this guy to walk into that space. Something had to get reoriented, reworked inside him, right? I, I read that and I think, um, I think of the way Jesus uh, would heal. Like uh, there's a story of a leper. Now, leprosy uh, is a problem just like the crippling is a problem for this person. It, it sidelines side the person that Jesus is talking to. 
And it's not just that that man is sort of unclean and ruled out, but just to touch the man, just to touch the man with his leprosy takes the person who did the touching and transmits that uncleanliness to the person who did the touching, right? There's a leper who cries out to Jesus and said, if you're able, Jesus, you can heal me, which it's interesting, by the way, right? The man says, if you're able, you can heal me. He's not doubting Jesus' power. He's doubting his heart. He's not doubting whether God can do the thing. He's whether, doubting whether God has the desire to do the thing, has a loving disposition toward this leper, right? So the leper cries out, Jesus, if you want, you can heal me. And Jesus doesn't from a distance speak it. He walks up to the man, touches him, holds him, embraces him, and heals his body. And I've got to believe it's because more than his body need healed, right? Because after years of never being touched, embraced, held, never having arms wrapped around him, I suspect he needed more than the leprosy to go away. He needs something inside him healed. And our, our friend here, the beggar at the gate, I've got to believe that more, more than his body needed healed, that something needed reintegrated for him, something needed brought back together for him. Maybe all the ways that he thought the world was against him or God was against him, maybe that needed healed as he walked through that gate and into that space he had never accessed before. There's a, a work of art that comes to mind when I think of this moment in the beggar's life. Uh, there's a story called The Color Purple, and it turned into a Broadway musical, and then it got revived in the past year or two. And there's a, a character in The Color Purple named Sally, I think is how you pronounce it. And uh, this woman, uh, a black woman in the early 1900s, she's been beaten and abused. She's been sexually abused and physically destroyed. She, her family has been ripped apart. Her kids have been taken from her. In so many ways, her life has just been ripped apart, been beaten down by the world around her. And there's a redemptive arc in the story, and I won't bother with too much of the summary, but let's just say that there's a turning point where all of these pieces that have been broken apart in her life finally come back together. There's a moment in their story where everything that's sort of disintegrated, like the things she's running from, the wounds that she's carrying, all that sort of gets brought back together. And I think about her storyline, and I think about the beggar, and I wonder if there's something similar going on. And to, to kind of capture this moment of bringing it all back together, of healing these things, of restoring these things for her, there's a song uh, called I'm Here that's uh, in this musical. Let me read you some of the lyrics. Remember, she's talking about a family that's been broken and split apart and kids that have been taken away and all the ways that she's been reduced by the world, right? And in this turning point, when things are healed within her and her story takes a redemptive turn, she sings, I got my sister. I can feel her now. She may not be here, but she's still mine. I know she still loves me. I've got my children. I can't hold them now. They may not be here, but they're still mine. And I hope I, they know I still love them. I've got my house, it'll still keep the cold out. Got my chair when my body can't hold out. Got my hands doing good like they're supposed to. Showing my heart to the folks that I'm close to. I've got my eyes, though they don't see as far now. They see more about things, how things really are now. I'm gonna take a deep breath, gonna hold my head up, gonna put my shoulders back and look you straight in the eye. Uh, it's actually a lot better if you hear it. You guys wanna hear it? Like the song? You wanna go to church? We're about to go to church. You guys ready for that? All right, let's, uh, let's play it, Joe. I don't need you to love me. I don't need you to love. I've got, I've got. I've got my sister, 
I can feel her now She may not be here But she's still mine I know She still loves me Got my children I can't hold them now They may not be here But they still mine I hope They know I still love them Got my house It still keeps the cold My body can't hold out Got my hands doing good Like they supposed to Showing my heart To the folks that I'm close to Got my eyes Though they don't see as far now They see more About how things really Come on now. Yeah, right? Let's shake off the cold a little bit.
I mean, the reason I play that is because I think so many of these sentiments are better expressed through art than just me talking at you, right? But one thing I think a church has to be from this text is, is people who are discovering that there is more waiting for them in Christ than small dreams, than small desires about just getting by, that a church is people who are discovering in Christ the promise of integration and healing and being drawn back into the center of what God is doing in the world. Not beggars on the periphery, but people who are in the center of what God is up to in the world because he's come for them and he loves them and he looks at them and he says like, things like, in the name of Jesus, like, let me take your hand, like, get up, let's walk together into the center of what God is doing. So Peter and John, uh, they grab the beggar's hand, they lift him up and they walk with him into that space. And maybe he sang like a black lady from Broadway. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you don't really relate to the beggar, though. I, I don't think everybody on any given day would relate to the beggar. Because not everybody is in a season of life or has had an experience in life where they feel sidelined. Not everybody has been in a season of life or had an experience where they feel most in touch with brokenness. Uh, this is one of the problems with preaching is like we universalize everything, and I think that's kind of sloppy. There's probably a number of people in the room who it's more like, no, like, I, I feel like I'm moving in the right direction in life. I feel like my dreams are pretty big for life. I feel like I trust God for a lot of things in this world and that my life is being put together in, in a way that I, I sense God's activity in the world. And for you, I'd say, what about Peter and John? Do you relate to them at all? And what I mean by that is like Peter and John, they're on their way to the, to the place where God is doing his thing. The temple, that's still early in this Christian movement. The temple is still the center of much of their life together as the people of God, even for the people who are following Jesus. They're on their way. They've got their plan. They're going there for prayer. And they walk by the beggar. And I wonder how easy would it have been for them to just see a one-dimensional figure who needs some money and keep on walking by? Like how easy would it be for them to just like think, well, that's, that's, there are beggars around the temple. That's just what you have around the temple. You have beggars around the temple who are hoping to get a little bit from the people who are on their way to do the God thing and they're there to make their offerings and so they've got a bit with them. I wonder how easy it would have been for them to just walk right on by and see a one-dimensional person where there was a three-dimensional human being waiting for more than alms who needed a hand to be reached out. He needed somebody to see him. A church isn't just a bunch of people, I think, who relate to the beggar. A church is a bunch of people who feel convicted by the example of Peter and John, that we need to see three-dimensional people wherever we go in the world, whether they're here in the room tonight or they're in our workplace, our neighborhoods, our schools, down the street, in the office. We're the ones also who are developing the eyes to see three-dimensional people where everybody else just sees a hand outreached, right? I don't know if you've had experiences where you've seen the way that people can turn other people into one-dimensional reductive things. I've uh, worked some waiting jobs, and I can tell you I've seen it. <laughs> if you've ever waited tables, that's one place where you, you see it hard and fast. Uh, this isn't waiting, but and some of you have heard the story, I know, but I remember I worked at Barnes & Noble in high school and college, and I worked in the cafe sometimes, and the cafe was uh, like my little dream place. I'd just sit there by the espresso machine, you know, make a drink, drink a drink, make a drink, drink a drink, all day long. It was brilliant, you know. <laughs> but sometimes somebody would walk in and they would just treat the people on the other side of the counter like dirt. And if you haven't been on the other side of the counter, you may not realize that like right here in sweet little South Bend, people are capable of the most undescribable, completely unprovoked venom towards service people. I don't even know why, but it happens in the world. I remember one time I'm there and my friend Jenny's at the cash register ringing everybody up and I'm the one making the drinks down the counter at the big espresso machine. 
And Jenny's making the drinks, and this lady comes in, and this is just completely unprovoked for no reason whatsoever. Jenny's this bright, helpful, wonderful person. He says something like, hey, how can I help you? And I watched this woman just, like, mount up against her with, like, dehumanizing, like, belittling for absolutely no reason. I'm like, if you haven't seen it in person, it's hard to imagine that this just happens with people, but it ha- they just, just unloading on Jenny for no reason, just looking down on her. Her body language is like, like making Jenny seem inferior. Her attitude, her language, the way she orders her drink, the way she quibbles with her, just, just, just treating Jenny like dirt for no reason whatsoever. And I'm over there at the espresso machine thinking, like, how much spit can I get in her coffee <laughs> without the viscosity changing enough that she notices, right? Thinking it is all I said. Thinking it, right? And I'm just watching this happen. And Jenny is clearly like a one-dimensional thing to this lady across the counter. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's no, like it's no different than like when my computer isn't working the way I want to and I get mad at my computer. It's like that same kind of interaction with a living, breathing human being across the counter from her, right? Now, by the way, the funny thing about this story is the lady who's treating Jenny so badly doesn't know anything about Jenny, but our manager who's behind the lady in line does. And our manager was this really, really smart, really wonderful person who was also like a real champion for her staff. And so in, in a moment where the lady who's belittling Jenny takes a breath so she can just unleash another assault, while she takes a breath, like kind of like to reload her gun, right? Like while she's reloading, my manager just pipes up over the shoulder and says to Jenny, hey, Jenny, I heard you got into Harvard. I'm so glad for you. Congratulations. <laughs> and the lady does like a 180, like all of a sudden Jenny's a human being, do you know what I mean? And this lady goes from just venom toward Jenny to, oh, Harvard, how wonderful, oh, wonderful, my niece went to Harvard, you're going to love it, dear. And I, I wanted to slap the lady, you know what I mean? Like, but, but, and that's a, an extreme like retail example of the ways that we turn other people into one-dimensional things, but don't you know we have lots of other ways that we do it? I mean, the church isn't just the place where beggars have their hands held and carried into healing. The church is also the place where every one of us is learning how to see everyone else three-dimensionally. Like, maybe even before they see themselves three-dimensionally, right? Like, maybe even before they have dreamed of a better tomorrow, we are the ones dreaming of it for them. Maybe before they've even thought to pray for healing, we're the ones praying for it for them. Maybe before they've even imagined that they could be at the center of what God is doing in the world, the church are the ones who rally around them and say, we think you could be at the center of what God is doing in the world, because if we get to be a part of it, there's there's no kind of person in the world who's, like, disqualified from it, right? I mean, if we, you and me, Get to be a part of what God is doing. Get to be part of him loving and reaching and healing a world. Get to be part of building a more beautiful world with a deeper humanity. If we get to, then surely any kind of person could be a part of this story. And we're the ones meant to have eyes for it, meant to see it, meant to invite people into it, meant to hold their hands, meant to like, look them in the eyes and say, let me walk with you into this, right? If a church is anything, it's a whole bunch of people who have that way of seeing one another, that way of walking with one another, that way of hoping for each other, even if some of us or some of them or some of our friends or our neighbors or people who aren't here tonight don't see it, don't imagine it, don't dream of it like that. Now, Jesus, he has a way of doing this. Sometimes it's miracles like the leper. Um, as often as not, though, uh, he, he seems to opt for meals over miracles, which I love about Jesus. Because sometimes the miracles are weird, but who doesn't like a good meal, right? Um, So that turns me to a bit of information, but it really is integral to what we're talking about here. And that's about something coming up three weeks from now, which is uh, on November 16th. You'll see this on the back of your program. It's a Wednesday night, but we won't be at the brick that Wednesday night. 
So that's the first time in this run that we won't be gathering at a Wednesday night at the Brick. Instead, what we're doing is uh, in-home meals, and everybody's invited. So we've uh, tapped on the shoulder a number of home hosts who are part of our community, and we've got it set up on the website. So if you go to southbendcitychurch.com, you'll see there we've got all the homes listed. You might find an area of town that's most convenient for you. Some of the homes are kid-friendly. Some of them are not, and I think you can tell that on the website. Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. Do you guys know Amanda, by the way, who's another one of our staff members, who's a total rock star who hates it when we call her out in public? <laughs> yeah, you should give Amanda some serious love. Amanda's the reason the website works. Amanda's the reason the signs are out there. Amanda's the reason the finances work. Amanda's the reason that the giving is tracked. Amanda's the reason for a lot of stuff. So you should all be really happy about Amanda. Um, anyway, so we're doing in-home meals. And it, in, in one sense, it's like super lighthearted. Nobody is expecting any of us to perform a physical healing at one of these meals, okay? So you just relax about that. Nobody is expecting like deep, dark, desperate conversations of sin and brokenness around the table with people you never met before unless you want to go there. I don't know. Uh, but that's not to say that this isn't incredibly important and central to what we want to be as a community. It's not like, okay, what happens in the room with the music and the Bible and the singing and the praying, like that's like the super sacred spiritual stuff. And then meals shared, well, that's like second tier. If you remember last week, meals together were at the center of that picture of the church breaking into the world. So we really believe that something important happens when we gather around tables and homes. So we've got it on the website. Uh, please sign up. If we run out of room, we'll find a way to add more homes to host. Uh, but each home host has sort of set their own capacity, so you won't have to worry about whether there's too many or not because it'll work that all out online. But please uh, go online like tonight before you forget about it and figure out how you can be part of an in-home dinner coming up in three weeks. So we've got two more Wednesdays after this here. Then we've got that happening on the 16th. And then on the 23rd of November, it's the day before Thanksgiving, and we're just going to, like, chill that night, like, do your family thing or do your Friendsgiving thing or do your travel thing or, like, carve up for Black Friday or whatever you need to do that day, okay? So that's coming around the corner. Um, meals together, because if we're going to be a church that sees one another, then we should probably be a church that eats together and gets to know one another like that. Cool? Sound good? Awesome. Good. One more note here uh, in the text, and it's this. Um, they're in the temple. And the temple is not just a place in Scripture. And if you've heard me preach before, we turn to this a lot. That there's a lot going on in the temple biblically as an image, as an idea in the Scripture. But the temple is not just a place. It's not just a building. It's not just a spot on a map. The temple is loaded with purpose and theology and spirituality and human experience and vision and dreaming. It's all packed into the space. It's really, really multidimensional. The temple has a, has a purpose, though. It's a venue for something. It's, it's a space where something is supposed to happen. For the temple to be what it's supposed to be, something is supposed to happen in the temple. And Jesus alludes to it. He speaks directly to it uh, in a passage in the Gospels where he comes into the temple, and the things that aren't supposed to be happening there are happening there. And so he condemns the way that it's become a profiting scheme and a way of keeping people far from God. He condemns that. And then he says, this was always supposed to be a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where words go up to God and we know that they are received. This is supposed to be a place where connection with God is experienced and we know that it's happening. That's what's supposed to happen. And I call that out because this man on the periphery, on the sidelines for so long, finally gets welcomed into that space, healed with hands around him, brought in. And what happens? He starts praising God and everybody sees it. Everybody notices this man is like singing out, shouting out praise to God. My point is this, the temple fulfills its purpose when this man gets brought in. 
When the people around this man stop dreaming little dreams for him, but dream big dreams for him, even if he doesn't dream them for himself. When, he, when he's uh, opening himself up to healing, not just alms, the temple becomes what it's supposed to be again in this moment because this man gets healed and brought in. And you and I, like, we, we have all these opportunities uh, for South End City Church to be like anything right now. I mean, this could quickly go like in a whole bunch of different directions, right? Like, it could quickly become a sports bar tonight. I know you guys are itching to get to the game. Um, it, could be a, it could be a collection of people who know each other really, really well, and we just really enjoy the comfort of walking into a room where every face is familiar, and then we never welcome anybody new. It could quickly become, uh, we hope it's the cool church, or it could quickly become, we hope it's the big church, or it could quickly become, we hope it never gets big, or it could become a lot of things, right? But there's this reminder, there's this vision of the temple being what it ought to be, and the church becomes uh, the temple lived out in the modern world, uh, Lots going on there, but one thing that happens in the temple uh, happens when this man, this broken man on the sidelines gets pulled in. And I just say that because, like, if we're going to be a church, let us remember, let us dream for, let us pray for, let us work for, let us give everything we've got for hoping and dreaming and working toward people on the sidelines brought in, broken people healed, hand in hand. And we've got to see people for that to happen. Um, Let's turn to a moment of practice reflection before we wrap things up. On, your, on the scripture page there, you'll see there's just a couple of questions at the very bottom. And um, I don't know about you, but silence is so scarce in my life that we think that one of the gifts we can give one another as a church is simply a little bit of silence for the sake of reflection. Uh, for me, like, I don't even have roommates or anything, but there's still so much noise in my life. I wake up with radio on my phone, and then I get in my car, and then I go to meetings, and then there's Netflix at night, and before you know it, there's just no silence, right? So we want to create uh, just a couple of minutes of silence and a couple of questions to sit with you and me. In what ways have your dreams, desires, and prayers been too superficial or small? It's our way of saying, like, in what way do you identify with a beggar? And then this. Where are you tempted to keep your distance when someone may be in need of healing and inclusion? It might be inconvenient, it might be messy, might complicate your schedule, might make your life a little harder. Where are you tempted to keep your distance when somebody may be in need of healing and inclusion? Let's sit for uh, just a few minutes with these two questions and then we'll pray together and be on to what's next. <laughs>